the law sets that precedent, so they can do that. Uh, now you can say that, you know, this, is that fair and equitable distribution of the law? Uh, is that put the burden and responsibility of the law equally? No, it doesn't, but th they have that right to do so. So that's fine. I don't challenge that. What I challenge is the Supreme Court ruling and the constitutionality that you should show intent if you're going to label somebody a criminal. That, that, that's the only thing I have. Regenerative Warrior Show. My name is Dr. Ross Carter. I want to introduce uh, our special guest today, Dr. Jay Joshi. Welcome to the show today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Great to have you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, um, I know you wrote the book, Burden of Pain, correct? That's right. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, that's really about the, the challenge with being a pain management physician. Is that about what it's mainly about? So I'm a primary care physician, and so it's really about the challenges of being a primary care physician in the area in which there's a shortage of pain physicians, and that oh. a lot of the primary care needs then fall onto those from those patients who have pain needs that go on to combining their chronic pain conditions with their overall primary care conditions. So you're really managing both at the same time. Right. So do you sort of like become a primary uh, a pain management doctor as well? And not in just a sense, uh, you do try your best to coordinate care as much as possible. So, for example, uh, uh, if you have a patient with like cystic fibrosis or if you have a patient yep. with a neurocystosis, you try to coordinate with the specialist. But inevitably, you're the one who's taking out a brunt of the care simply because of the logistics and seeing a specialist and the needs to limit the amount of medication being prescribed. So what would you say we could, we could teach other doctors really how, what to understand about what, what the, what's the benefit for them to listen to the show? The, the main thing really is to recognize that more than any guideline, it's the interpretation and the behavior around the guidelines. So the CDC can all of a sudden mandate 15 days for medications, or your insurance carrier can only mandate 10 days per medication. These are guidelines that people implement with the idea that the guidelines serve as proxy for good behavior. I would argue that the guidelines are neither good nor bad. It's the behavior and the interaction around those guidelines. So what I want physicians to understand and what I want patients to understand, it's more about fostering the relationship and making decisions based off of the conversations and the relationships that manifest. So it's okay to trust and be willing to take a risk on a patient so long as you verify that trust and you verify that risk. So it's really about optimizing clinical decisions in the face of uncertainty and acknowledging that there's uncertainty and using that to guide decisions as much as you use the guidelines. Think about it in this manner. If you were my patient and you came in for a continuation of your medications, let's say you have a history of uh, uh, falls from work and you've had uh, multiple uh, lower back surgeries, uh, spinal stenosis, what have you, and I'm managing your condition. 
Yes. Instead of me saying, I know you have these conditions, I have the medical records, but I know that I've been continually giving these medications. Now what I need to do is I need you to do this imaging study. I need you to take this urine drug screen. So in effect, what you're doing is you're transacting legal risk for medical risk. Because the idea is that a urine drug screen must be used every three or four months. Otherwise, you're not following guidelines. That's fair and well, and that's good medicine. But that shouldn't be the end all and be all. Instead, you should have a conversation around how the symptoms are manifesting, whether there's peaks or valleys, and how the patient is modifying their medication use relative to their behavioral use, and then use the urine drug screens in the imaging studies. Instead, we got into this world where it's in effect a transaction. I'm transacting legal risk for medical risk. And what that leads to is an overabundance of medical services, excess medical costs, and now you're going away from the fundamental trust in the patient-physician encounter, and you're using the guidelines to transplant patient care. How many times have you had a patient say, I, my doctor simply said he couldn't do it, the guidelines are there. My doctor simply said the DEA won't let him do it. These are excuses that we as physicians make because we want to now take away the concept of uncertainty, take away the concept of managing that patient-physician relationship, and instead saying, take this test, complete this guideline, and then I make my decisions. And I'm telling you that that's not helping the opiate epidemic and in many ways is going to create additional problems for healthcare going forward. We're talking mainly about primary care, not necessarily specialized in pain management. So it's the primary care doctors that uh, this, is, this is really uh, mostly about, correct? Uh, yeah, and, and I, I would agree that we shelter the greatest burden of the healthcare impact diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, so much of the impact of those very serious conditions come from those small individualized decisions. Typically, when we're talking about uh, primary care dealing with mainly a pain-related condition too, right? I think it's most apparent with pain because it's the one obvious example in which you lack the objective guidelines that other conditions have. For example, with diabetes, there's hemoglobin A1C. Now, you can tout the pros and cons of hemoglobin A1C, but it's pretty well established. That's the main way to go. With pain, we have this linear scale. But even the pain specialist that came up with that scale felt that pain was inadequate to be described by just a scale of 1 to 10. That's why it's the cartography of pain. It describes itself in many different ways. And pain was always to be understood as a series of adjectives that complement the number series. Well, we got rid of all those complex words and we kept the simple scale. And I think the idea behind that is to just simplify the whole continuum of pain as a symptom into a number scale. And because there's no objective metric that can be used, now those guidelines have proven to be even less valuable than other conditions. And the framework of using the ratios as thinking becomes much more obvious and much more easily understood within the context of pain relative to other conditions. So when it comes to pain, you're not, you're not recommending using the, the, just the one to 10 pain scale. You're, you're recommending a little, something a little bit more broad, correct? Yeah. I, I, what I recommend is really to understand the characterization of those symptoms. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that they wanted to be nouns, but they were merely adjectives when he talks about pain in philosophical terms. 
And the reason behind that is pain itself is not the beginning or end. It always exists relative to something else. And in mathematical terms, something that's relative is a ratio, which I keep coming back to. So pain is always relative to an underlying condition, a state of mind, or a combination of the two. So while it's appropriate to begin by helping the patient characterize the pain through a scale of one to 10, it then behooves us to go further to understand what could be causing those symptoms and addressing the underlying symptoms, the underlying mental conditions that are exacerbating that. Uh, I'll give you a very interesting example. Um, yep. We all know that the total quantity of uh, prescription opioids have decreased in recent years in response to the opioid epidemic. Uh, there was a study that came out in 2017 that showed one third of patients who have back pain are co-prescribed anxiety medications. Now, that could be a sample size defect, but what that could also demonstrate is that the back pain has a psychiatric component as well. And you could use the benzodiazepines as a psychiatric agent, but also as a pain agent, because in the patient's mind, they're conflating the two. Now, is that prescribing outside of the scope? Is that enticing medication dependency? Or is that using the medication as a truly dependent? We haven't really gone down that route and we haven't really understood how those two medications can work together aside from saying taking both at the same time increases dependency risk. So we know that there's a risk to combining those medications. But why do so many physicians inevitably find themselves in that situation? In aggregate, we know it's a risky way to treat patients. But at an individual level, so many patients find themselves in that situation where physicians are tapering down the opioids, but then identifying something else, and that something else inevitably be, is another controlled substance, whether it's a muscle relaxant, whether it's a gabapentin, whether it's a Xanax. All these medications have certain risks to them, and we know that. And when you talk to any physician at any policy level, they'll tell you that's the wrong thing to do. Yet at the individual level, we see this. We see this happen with quite significant regularity. So it's not just a series of physicians making bad decisions. It's a series of physicians disconnecting what they understand at a broad level and what they're doing at an individual level in terms of making decisions for patient care. But how do they get trained on which way to go? I mean, how, how else, you know, typically these physicians, especially primary care, they don't have all that amount of time really to, to, to take care of these kind of patients. So how, how do we solve that? We don't have the time and we're just now starting to get the level of training and even mm -hmm. the training itself is incomplete. So how can you really define parts of a whole when the parts are still developing? Uh, those right. are great questions. Uh, I think what it comes down to is emphasizing the narrative, uh, emphasizing the patient physician communication and willingly state I am making the decisions based on the conversation I had with the patient, which is almost a taboo thing to say, unless you go back to the William Osters of the world, the Maimonides of the world, the Hippocrates of the world that emphasize empirical medicine. They were all humanists. They all valued the experience of the patient communicating with the patient. But if you were to document and that documentation would then get the hands of a lawyer, that you made a clinical decision based on communicating with the patient and you felt the communication was sufficient, uh, that's putting yourself up for a significant legal risk. But I think that communication, if done in a manner which you structuredize your decision-making, can go a long way in complementing the now guideline-heavy world that we find ourselves in.
So now, now it's not just, you know, trying to help the patients. Now you have to deal with legal issues that relate to the decision-making. Yeah. And, and I think that has a major effect. So one of the big buzzwords that have come across now are these false positives and these false negatives that you talk about in healthcare. Uh, the legal risk of that has not really been implicated as well as it should, but it's a major issue. The whole idea of a false negative in healthcare is extremely fearful. And that's where the whole perception and quantifying the trust issue comes in because the cost of a false positive is much lower than the cost of a false negative. So physicians have a tendency to then want to do more things. Whether those things actually have value, nobody's to really say. I spoke to a couple of academic GIs uh, about a month ago. And every academic physician always talks about what is the utility of ordering a certain imaging study and a certain test? And they always talk about cost-effective medicine and making the right decisions and not just shotgunning everything. But then when you get into the private uh, practice world, the time becomes a factor and it just becomes easier. Instead of looking at things from a very analytical standpoint, every time we develop a fluency and that's natural to human behavior, but any skilled task you develop a fluency, which is just a regular pattern. So you then tend to now over-order or you tend to over-prescribe. And that's why these tendencies in aggregate lead to the overall mass effects that you see because each mass effect is a series of accumulations of a small delta error that happened at a very individual level, smaller over smaller, that then aggregate larger over larger, that create larger healthcare policies. And the fact that individual decisions are disconnected from broader policies is why we have a lot of the issues that we have. And that's why I hearken back to the pain concept, because this is where the issues and the disconnect between individual decision-making and broader societal effects, the disconnect is much greater. Wow. It, it sounds, it, it, I, I, it just kind of sounds scary to even get involved in that realm just because there's not enough uh, training, there's not enough time to spend with the patient to really do this. And you do have to make decisions based um, on what your liability is going to be based on your, what you're going to do. So how do you, how do you decide, how, how do you figure that out? I mean, that's really, I guess it's, it sounds very difficult to figure out which way to, to go if you, think this person needs this, but it also leaves you more susceptible to uh, legal aspects. I mean, how, how does somebody decide? Well, I, um, I don't have the answer, but I have a proposed solution. Oh, okay. That's uh, I, I don't know if anybody really has an answer to that question. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the key things. That's a very hard question to answer. So a lot of people have skipped around that. And that's why we have seemingly new guidelines coming out from different organizations almost all the time. Right. Uh, the, the proposed solution is to structure your decision-making uh, with the context of the patient in mind. So if you have two patients with the same presenting symptoms, uh, similar past medical histories, but you just have a different level of trust or a different vibe with one patient versus the other that you can't really explain, but it's just one of those things that you feel that you naturally gain with any person and over the course of communication, document that, share that with the patient, ask the patient, do you feel the same way I do? 
And in a sense, what you're doing is you're reciprocating the channels of communication. Uh, philosophers talk about this all the time with the law of attraction. You, you attract what you are. Well, why don't you make that explicit in the patient-physician encounter instead of making that an implicit feeling that you have but you don't really communicate effectively? So I always kind of turn back to now the skilled communication aspect because I think that's critical in decision-making. When you think about the patient-physician encounter, what is it? It's a series of words that are exchanged and then thoughts are generated and decisions are then made. Yes, you look at the lab data, you look at the imaging studies, so on and so forth, but it really always has that conduit. Well, why don't you just try to explain the thoughts that you have and how that's being used to make your decision and see how the patient responds to it? You know, uh, a few years ago, nudges were a really hot topic and everybody were always talking about, let's put nudges in healthcare, things like that. And if, in a sense, they serve as effective reminders, which nobody really wants in healthcare. Nobody wants to be goaded to do this or say this or remember that. But if you structure the nudge in a way that balances perception to action, you get a much more honest conversation. So if there's a nudge, let's say before a patient and a physician communicated for their annual visit, where it says, how comfortable are you to tell your physician that you are non-compliant with your diet. So what that really does is it allows the patient to quantify how much they're willing to trust their physician. How often do you see, oh, I always take my medications as I should. I always take my diet seriously. Oh, I don't know why my sugar is spiking. Uh, you know, <laughs> I did that for a few patients and I, and I had them put on these uh, continuous glucose monitors and you would see these spikes and I finally got one to admit that he has a pretty bad cookie habit at night. So uh -huh. it's, these, it's these things. He would not have told me that if I would not have put, taken the time to put that continuous glucose monitor on him and talk to him about his noncompliance. So it's one of those situations where if you can effectively structure the communication, you can elucidate information that are helpful for decisions. And so you're not shooting in the dark as much as you would if you just had a guideline-only approach to medicine. Well, then when you don't follow the guidelines, that's when you get in trouble. Isn't that when the legal action started? Oh, this is not according to the guidelines. But if you say, well, I felt that the, the communication with the patient and we were, you know, we didn't feel that was appropriate and we did a different course of action. Isn't that where you put yourself in jeopardy? Yeah. And believe me, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it, it's not to say that the guidelines don't have merit. It's uh, what I said from the beginning where, there's the guidelines and then there's the interpretations around those guidelines. Mm. So I, I think what you have is kind of the guideline structure, the course of the conversation, and then you have the interpretations around that. It's really where everything kind of meaningful happens. An analogy I give is kind of the atom where, you know, the, the properties of an atom, uh, everybody initially thought were defined by the nucleus, which is at the center, considered that to be those guidelines but it's really the electrons that are floating around that determine the properties of that atom. Mm -hmm. And in that same vein, it's the communication and the interpretations that are going along all around those guidelines that dictate the actions. That makes sense. And uh, so what, I guess I was going to ask you what precipitated this book, but it sounds like it was, you, you had, a, you got into a situation where this was, something that you had faced yourself in practice. I did. I did. Yeah. And so that's what made you or encouraged you to write about 
I get was it was it a kind of like an injustice you felt needed to be heard or what what was it that you thought what what, I, what happened was there was a former employee who was forging scripts under my name and the mm. uptake in controlled substances rose and the DEA began to look in my practice uh, when I filed the police report you know, what inevitably happened is the employee I filed the police report on then became the basis for an investigation so then an undercover agent came in he said that he had leg cramps he had a history of taking moderate strength Vicodin uh, and he wanted to continue his care. I told him I was uncomfortable giving him that dose. And so I lowered him to Norco at a lower quantity and I continued care. I asked for his medical records, asked him to perform urine drug skin, so on and so forth. The interpretation of the law is that because I gave any medication at all, that was viewed as a criminal act. Uh, they took that out of context to say that it didn't matter that you ordered a urine drug screen that you reviewed his prescription history, that you asked for his medical records. Simply the act of prescribing alone is deemed as criminal. And so I then began to look at the Controlled Substance Act and I found that in the past, the law was very reliant on the interpretations of DEA agents and legal precedent used the DEA interpretation. So I realized like if you're essentially going up against a law that's subjected to the interpretations of somebody who's not even medically trained and oftentimes not even beyond a high school level education, uh, you, you really have no recourse. And so I'm actually now pursuing what's called a post-conviction relief where you can challenge the constitutionality of the law. So what's interesting is in 1970, uh, the Supreme Court uh, dictated that any sort of healthcare law in which you're gonna adjudicate criminal behavior has a requirement of what's called mens rea, meaning intent. So you have to show that the person who is deemed a criminal has an intent to commit a crime. Uh, since that, uh, the appellate court has not upheld that. So it, from my case, uh, it was no longer required to demonstrate I had any criminal intent. All they had to do was they just have an undercover agent come in, pose as a patient, and I then trusting the patient become a criminal. And so what right. they are looking at is it's conflating, and this is now using legal terms, conflating an elemental analysis of the law, meaning you just take little points here and there to then brand the essence of the individual. And so uh, I talked to a couple of criminal health organizations and uh, many people don't realize this, but uh, the government has a policy repeatedly of violating individual rights in healthcare for what they perceive to be broader public goods. And you start to see that with at a much less severe level with the mask, with the vaccines. So it's not something that is foreign or just isolated to the opioid epidemic world, but it is something that you see most predominantly and carries the greatest consequences in the opioid world. Yeah, I imagine so. Wow, that's, that's unfortunate. I, I you know, I guess no matter what you do, you're always going to be, if they want to find, catch you or convict you, I mean, they can find any way to do it. There's always- well, I, mean, I mean, the law sets that precedent, so they can do that. Uh, now you can say that, you know, is, is that fair and equitable distribution of the law? Uh, is that put the burden of responsibility of the law equally? No, it doesn't, but they have that right to do so. So that's fine. I don't challenge that. What I challenge is the Supreme Court ruling and the constitutionality that you should show intent 
if you're going to label somebody a criminal. That, that, that's the only thing I have. That makes sense. So they have to, yeah. Your, what your intention was, you were trying to help somebody, but they were trying to catch you doing something they felt was, was wrong. Essentially. Yeah. So is that what your book is about? It's called burden of pain, correct? Yeah. So the story begins with that. And then it includes in there an analysis of the law, the controlled substance act. And then it starts to establish the framework on how you need to look at laws in order to make them medically appropriate. In a sense, it's saying you can't look at the Controlled Substance Act as a violation in the healthcare setting if you don't even know what you're looking for. If a DEA agent doesn't even know what constitutes good clinical medicine, then the DEA agent is not in a position to dictate what's criminal and what's not criminal. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I followed the CDC guidelines in 2016, lowered the medications, established a plan of action, limited the amount of medications. It didn't matter. All that mattered was the interpretation of the DEA agent, which if you think about that, if that would apply broadly, yes, yeah. if, if you were to think about how that would apply, apply broadly, uh, in a sense, uh, physicians every day could be indicted based off of the criteria in which I was indicted. And I think that puts healthcare in a very scary situation because you see stories of patients being cut off of physicians too scared to prescribe. And, and what happens is now, when you look at the decision making and that false negative, all of a sudden now, it, it's almost like, well, even that doesn't matter. It's just that doing anything at all is even more significant. So that changes the calculus of decision making, making physicians, putting physicians in a position where they're making even worse clinical decisions because of the legal risk. Yeah, that's what I was saying at the beginning. It's like, yeah. it seems like the, the problem here is doctors are going to make decisions based on the legal to, to protect themselves and not what's necessarily best for the patient. And that's a hard thing to get around because a doctor, you know, wants to help, but he doesn't want to go to jail because he, you know, because of something that, you know, he may not agree with, but still, I don't know. It just seems... That's it. Well, essentially, what the what the government is doing, um, like I describe it as a internal tyranny, in that they're just selecting people, giving them the scarlet letter, and then scaring everybody else. Right. And you know, the, the we have a system of law designed to do the exact opposite, where it's supposed to protect the individual, so you don't have these fear-based propaganda running around, systematizing fear. But in a sense, that's the DEA strategy to reduce diversion that, hey, let's just scare the hell out of everybody. Yeah. And that way we know that we reduce the amount of drugs out there. Why do you think you were targeted? I think I was targeted because of the employee. And I think there's an uptick in there. And what had happened was because there was an uptick, they were able to say that, well, I should have known before this was going on. And so that was then the basis for starting the investigation. There's a concept called parallel construction. So what, what, uh, what they were able to say is that, well, the time the police report came in, we already began investigating him. So we were already there. So th there's a concept in law called parallel construction where uh, if there's two simultaneous investigations going on and one is determined to be fraudulent, uh, you can use evidence from the one that was deemed to be fraudulent to help the one that's still going on 
to push an investigation forward. Uh, it sounds pretty bizarre, but uh, there's a legal precedent for that to happen. <laughs> so they, they, they were in their right to come into my clinic. Um, I thought I'd perform good clinical care. Uh, apparently I did not. And so now I'm really challenging it now post-conviction on the basis of the intent to commit a crime. And what was, do you mind telling me what, uh, what was the outcome of your trial? Uh, so I was, uh, I was sentenced to 15 months and I served 11 months in prison. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that where you started writing the book? <laughs> no, I, I wrote it. Uh, I wrote it after I pleaded oh. and, and I, um, um, sent it out actually, uh, to various organizations. Actually, I, I sent it out to some of the, um, uh, main DEA agents as well in DC telling them this, this is the way to look at how healthcare investigations should be investigated, so on and so forth. Uh, I didn't get any responses. Uh, I was on, because what I prescribed was Norco 7.5, 325 twice a day. Uh, the agent had initially asked for Nor uh, for Vicodin 10, right. 500, three times a day. Uh, but that's above the 20 millimorphine equivalent. So I wanted to be below that. So I normally start at a level that's below the 20 millimorphine equivalents, which while it's not in the CDC guidelines, it's actually even more strict than the CDC guidelines. But that's how I approached the care until I got the medical records and your drugs and so on and so forth. Uh, I did not get all of that by the fourth visit. So then once four visits came by, they said, okay, doing criminal act. And so they basically um, took the quantity, equated it to, uh, I think it was kilograms of marijuana, and then sentenced me uh, based off of that. So instead of giving a, a, a prescription for just a month long of medications, uh, I was sentenced as if I was uh, prescribing just like kilograms of marijuana. Okay. That seems very strange. Yeah, it really does. Oh my God. I mean, I, I feel odd even saying it because I just, I, I see the incredulity on people's faces when they see how the law is being administered. But sure. that, that really is how the Controlled Substance Act is being applied in the healthcare setting. So you went from a physician to a dope dealer? In the eyes of the agent, yeah. What's interesting is, um, you know, I've been able, I was able to, you know, uh, successfully explain what had really happened to the medical licensing board um, on track to get my license back. Um, I want to go back to the same area where I was practicing initially. Uh, you know, I, I made a decision from the very beginning when this first happened, not to be ashamed of what happened, to own it. Yeah. Um, and it, it's funny when you start to explain these things, like people can't help but laugh. And at, at first I would get really sensitive to that and I kind of just shied away from it. But um, th this is really how the law is being administered. And I don't want to simplify it to say that the DEA agent's bad, Dr. Joshi good. Uh, because I think that they're, the DEA agents, in all fairness, are trying to do what they understand to the be best right. they know with their knowledge. But they're not a doctor. They're not trained in this. They're right. strictly looking for breaks of policies or regulations that they can prove to have a conviction. That's their job. That's what they're yeah. trying to do. Yeah, uh, but but I the FBI. Uh, has been more proactive. And so I, I looked at the annual reports. So, you know, w when I was away, which is the euphemism I use, when I was away, I uh, had access Wait. to- When I was in camp for a little while, yeah. you know. Yeah, my sabbatical. So um, I had access to a law library. So I spent a lot of time there. 
So I read up on the annual reports of various agencies. And so they have interagency reports and so forth. Um, the FBI, when it comes to financial crimes, like um, insurance fraud, so on and so forth, they apply um, much more sophisticated principles and data analytics. Uh, the DEA, when they're investigating drug-related crimes, uh, use the same policy the ATF did to um, for straw purchasers of guns. So in, in the DEA's mind, all you have to do is just show a transaction taking place, regardless of context, and that's the crime. So if the DEA hasn't taken the amount of time and effort like other agencies have to really understand the context around an action. So because they haven't really done that, they're, they're in a sense adversely influencing healthcare because all the physicians in the area in which I was practicing, they're scared as hell. They know that, no doubt. that nobody wants to be the next me because if you're caught in one situation, now all of a sudden you see physicians have these policies where I will not give you anything controlled for the first two visits, or you have to get a urine drug screen every time I prescribe you something, which is good for the physician because you're covering all angles. But now how much of a financial burden is that put on the patient when after five or six urine drug screens, the patient has to pay out of pocket for every urine drug screen because the insurance doesn't cover it anymore. So now all of a sudden you're shifting. That's what I talked about, uh, transacting medical for legal risk. You're essentially shifting the burden and liability away from yourself onto now the patient, onto other healthcare systems like insurance companies and hospitals. Man, that's, uh, that, is, that is a crazy, crazy situation. So where are you in the process of getting your, I guess, your license back to be able to practice? So there's a, a re-entry process. So I simply have to demonstrate that I'm capable of performing a differential diagnosis. And it's a, it's a two-day course where you go through this history and physical simulations and you present that in front of the board. And then I should get my license back. I think um, uh, from what I understand, it's only going to be for about two years where my uh, prescriptions and records are monitored. It's called a probationary period. Sure, and then sure. I'm kind of back to normal from there. Um, you know, obviously, pending everything goes I guess well. You'll avoid any of those patients that require those type of. <laughs> just like, I, you're, I'm not your guy for that, right? Yeah, you just have to be honest about it. And uh, I mean, I am. Uh, it, was, it was in the news. I spoke about it. I'm writing a book about it. So you know, like I said, I'm not really hiding from it. I'm kind of owning that process because one, it's what I believe the only thing I can do. And two, I think that it's good for medicine as a whole to yep. see these stories. Because when this first happened to me, I heard all these horror stories. So I was 34 at the time when this happened. I'm 36 now. So I had just invested in opening my own clinic, put down 100000 renovate the whole thing right across the street from the Munster police station too, by the way. But that's a different story. Okay. Um, well, so, they didn't have to go far to get you, I guess. No, they, they didn't, right? Because, you know, I would um, perform criminal activities in you know, eyesight of the police. But uh, uh, what's interesting is I heard all these stories like, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, this physician happened. Five years ago, that physician happened. And so the whole kind of rite of passage is that you're supposed to just kind of hide away, keep your mouth shut, and then kind of go and practice in a different state and kind of start fresh and so forth, you know, hide away your shame, this or that. Uh, I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm actually, I, I want to practice maybe one or two pounds over from where yeah. I was. Um, honestly, because it's convenient for my patients. And two, I, I kind of want to be that person that kind of says, hey, uh, 
I think I was a good physician. And, you know, I'd like to continue to prove that I was a good physician.